come down to, to the portion of our Maundy Thursday service, um, to the preaching of God's Word. So, as Darwin mentioned earlier, if you would turn with me to John 13, we'll be reading from the last portion of John 13 in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a little story. Um, our wedding day, Christina, my wedding day, was wonderful. Um, one of the most memorable days of my life. And that's not because every detail is seared in, in my brain and I have a photo record, you know, in my mind of it. Because frankly, it was a blur. I mean, it went by so quickly. But the experience of our ceremony, of the overwhelming support of family and friends, of a great party, those things have left a lasting mark on me. And one particular experience or memory of that day that has left a mark is our exit from the chapel at the end of the wedding ceremony. Um, I realized in, that in this moment on our wedding day that I, might, that I might cry, but that's a very different thing from being there, and it happens, you know, and you're like taken by surprise again that this is happening to you in front of everyone that loves you. Um, so when we turned from the front of the chapel and our pastor pronounced us husband and wife for the first time, and I locked in Christina's arm and turned around to, to exit, um, I also turned for my friends to see tears rolling down my face, um, guys who I had traveled with and worked with and suffered loss with and won with and lost with and struggled with and bled with. They saw these tears rolling down my cheeks, and it was an altogether different experience, unlike any other and most, most glorious. Tonight, where we are, Monday, Thursday, in John's Gospel tonight, where we are, Jesus begins the last, what's called the last discourses. This is the very beginning of his final moment with his disciples. All that means, last discourses, is this is an extended time of teaching for him with the people he spent most of his ministry with. And he begins them, strangely enough, with talk of glory, specifically his glory. Now, why would Jesus... A humble teacher from Galilee who has resisted nearly every opportunity for recognition, for people to hail him and worship him as the king that he really is. Why would he start this way? Why would this be his opening line? Well, first, because it's important. Usually the first thing is important. But also, because the glory that Jesus describes, it is the starting point of his committed love for us. And it's not a glory of joy, much like the glory that I experienced on our wedding day. His is a glory of sorrow. The question I want you to consider tonight as we read our text and consider what its message to us is, is this. What kind of glory is Jesus announcing here? And what does it do for me? What kind of glory is this that Jesus announces in this moment? And what does it do for me? What does it compel me to? So if you'll, if you'll turn, if you haven't yet, to John 13, let's read. We're going to re- read verses 31 through 35. So hear now God's word. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray and ask God to to teach us his word tonight. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for 
Thanks for the, the king who has come, who reigns now at your right hand, um, who has left us with, um, left us with himself, um, with this table before us, um, with this living and active word that we're reading from tonight. Um, that is living on its own. Thank you for what you have left us. Father, we, we pray that we would long for the day that Jesus returns. This wouldn't be enough tonight, um, that we would still hold on to the promise that you have given us, that he has a sure return. And we pray that you would show us now what it means that his life and death was glorious um, and this new command to love. pray that you'd open our eyes to see what you have for us here in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so two things I want you to see tonight in our text, okay? Two things. One is love manifested in glory. Okay, love manifested in glory. is The second is a new commandment to love. A new commandment to love. So firstly, love manifested in glory. First, love manifested in glory. John's gospel is unique in that Jesus often speaks of the hour, specifically his hour of glory. If you've read John's gospel or sort of tracked through it, then this has probably jumped out at you because it's a strange saying. Big picture, he's talking about the great act of vindicating his people of defeating death, of waging war against death and sin, and winning. That's what he's talking about in his hour of glory. But what does he mean on a local level? What does he mean hour by hour in his ministry? Why does he bring it up right now? He's talking about this moment right here. And he's talking about initiating his move to the cross. That begins in these verses we have tonight. You might have noticed that just before our text tonight, Judas receives the bread, the morsel of bread, when Christ institutes the supper. And then immediately he goes out, and it was night. This is the initiation sequence. Like in a movie when two people turn the key at the exact same moment to launch the missile, that's what's happening here. It's, it's clockwork like that. Jesus begins our passage tonight with now. Time is important. He wants you to get that this is initiating his move to the cross. And Jesus initiates that with talk of his glory. One good author, Andrew Lincoln, he succinctly puts it this way. Better words than I have. Whereas the synoptics speak of the Son of Man's suffering and death and his coming in glory as two separate events, John's distinctive contribution is to see the Son of Man's glory in that suffering and death. In other words, John, Jesus isn't preparing to be glorified anymore. There's no more time. His hour of glory is now. There's no more prep time. There are no more days of ministry ahead. No more healing. No more traveling on the countryside. The time is now. And Jesus inserts that urgency into the air of this room. It's like a voice coming over the loudspeaker saying, Flight 381 to Dallas-Fort Worth is boarding now. Last call. Last call. You listen, right? The disciples here are listening intently. And this is highly intentional. I want you to, to get this. This will help fit together this first point for us. Why does Jesus say this right now? Because this weekend, starting right here, is the most central event in human history. That is what has been initiated specifically. The, the most centered, the highest, and also the lowest moment and event in history is happening right now. So you see how it's not a time for rest, right? It's not a time for casual conversation, to extend the meal a little bit longer. This is a time of urgency, right? Of utmost importance. Whereas Wednesday and Holy Week is, is quiet. No particular events of note take place. Thursday is the opposite. High alert. If these are Jesus' farewell discourses, that name has stood through many ages, what do people usually do in their farewells? What do they say? 
You might know that I'm a disproportionately large number of soldiers on the battlefield um, as they are as they're dying, they will ask a comrade or compatriot to tell my mother that I love her. Here we have the same thing happening. Jesus doesn't waste any time, but he gets right to the point. First things first, telling his disciples once again what his purpose, what his mission is. And you know what he says? Glory. It's glory. But listen, you need to get this. Jesus doesn't describe the same kind of glory that you might feel when, say, looking into a newborn's face for the first time, or looking at your bride or groom on your wedding day. Jesus tells them about a glory of immense pain, of suffering, of shocking magnitude and isolation. Why? Because he is delivering the central message of his entire life, ministry, and death. I love you. I love you. That's what his whole life, his incarnation, his healing, his teaching was all about the whole time. I am a message of love sent to you straight from the Father's heart. And I'm going to show my love for you through suffering for you in my glory. And how can you be sure that, I'm, that Jesus is God's message of love here? How can you know? Well, Jesus says plainly right here, Surely as I was sent from the Father, you heard these words a minute ago, Surely as I was sent from the Father and I'm returning to the Father. That's the confidence you have. That's what you have. And if all of that wasn't enough... You're about to see me live out my love for you in death. Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you a new kind of glory, a glory in love. And the glory is for you. And the glory is in death. A few years ago, in a truly shocking and horrifying nationwide event, I'm sure many of you remember, um, a man in his 20s, Adam Lanza, he walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School and he proceeded to fatally shoot um, 20 six-year-olds and six faculty and staff. Up to that point, it was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. It was a horrifying and horrible event. Just to know that something like that could or would happen, everyone shared that feeling. But something sticks out about that story, maybe you haven't heard before. Adam Lanza, he entered the classroom of Anne Marie Murphy, She's one of the teachers at Sandy Hook Elementary. And Murphy had an obvious and an immediate sense of the danger in front of her. In particular, she thought of one of the students in her class, Dylan Hockley, who struggled with autism. Heather Timmons writing in Quartz a year ago says this. Murphy said Hockley, the teacher said the student had a close relationship with her. And she probably had a chance to run or hide. Instead... Anne-Marie Murphy made the most courageous decision that anyone could imagine. Anne-Marie Murphy found Dylan Hockley, and she embraced him. Know why we know that? When the police entered the classroom, that's how they found Dylan Hockley, dead, wrapped in the embrace of Anne-Marie Murphy. So why am I telling you this very, very sad story? Anne-Marie Murphy found self-giving love glorious. She was glorified in it. For her, it cost her her life. For the Christian, at the end of the story is a little bit different. It's a lot of bit different. There's a big difference. Instead of that story ending now, it's sadness, which is true in her case. We know, and Jesus here on this night, he acutely knows that his hour of glory has come and that it will surely end 
and joy and victory. That is why he can say with such confidence and he can carry through with submitting to his father's will. But because he has known, he has tasted the father's love. He has put it on as a child puts on her new crown, wand, and dress that she got as her birthday gift. He wears it, right? He abides in it. He looks to the father's love for his life every day. So here Jesus is looking toward his death, which is now standing right in front of him. And his heart immediately goes to those the Father has given him. As he delivers them the news that he's going to a place, you heard, that they cannot follow him, remember, which is all they've been doing for years, he even softens the news at the beginning of verse 33 there by addressing them little children. Point being, even in his moment of glory, when the betrayer has gone out to do his work quickly and Jesus' death sentence is initiated, his heart cares for his children, for the church. Um, a not-so-wise man once said, that's me referring to myself in the third person, to seek your own glory is to be an egoist. To participate in glory, to experience it, is to be human. To promote the glory of another, like Anne-Marie Murphy did, is heavenward, but to exclusively and relentlessly seek the glory of others only, that is divine. Here is Jesus' greatest sermon and assurance of his love He says, I'm going to die for you, that my love and I will be in you forever. So first, love manifested in glory. Now a new commandment to love. A new commandment to love. Jesus' message here in our text tonight is utterly simple. I'm going to die. And it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. The most gorgeous thing the world has ever witnessed. Jesus tells them why he's going to die. But not only does he tell them why he's going to die, he goes on to tell them what his death will do. Jesus continues, I die because the Father loves you and because I love you, but I will die in order to give you the greatest possession I have, myself, my love. You probably hear a lot about love. I think we all do. The world talks about love. It's all over the place. Um, It spins off movies, TV shows, books, all kinds of things. So the question here is, well, what kind of love is Jesus talking about? There are a lot of versions out there. Which one is he after? Well, let's start by saying what kind of love he is not talking about. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who is the former Italian prime minister, he's 80. He made news in the last few days, I don't know if you saw this, by infuriatingly infuriating the Italian meat lobby. Did you see this? He infuriated his own country's meat lobby. How did he do this? Well, Italians usually eat lamb or goat for Easter. It's the traditional dish, maybe like it is in our country sometimes. So he decided, Berlusconi decided to launch a campaign where he would save five lambs from the Easter slaughter. And he would urge people to choose a vegetarian Easter. And so there's this, he made a film with actors and actresses who are you know, wildly famous in Italy. And he's feeding these lambs from a bottle lying on this beautiful lawn. And it, honestly, it's one of the most cute things I've ever seen. It's precious. It really is. That may be a cuddly, you know, a fuzzy, a warm and fuzzies, even appealing kind of love, but that is not the kind of love that Jesus commands here. As we heard earlier, Maundy, even why we are gathering here tonight, Maundy, this word comes from the Vulgate, from Latin, the word for command, right? Jesus here is commanding something. It's not, I'm going to set an example of something nice. That's not what you heard, right? He says, a new commandment I give you. Rather, he commands this kind of love. I would offer another. Recently, Eloise, who's our one-year-old, 
She had had an emotional, just an exhausting, a draining day. And all she could do was to lean over on the floor and lie face down and cry and pound her tiny little fist on the floor. And Jack, who's our two-and-a-half-year-old, he noticed. He noticed the commotion in his play world. He put down his cup, and he went over to her. I thought maybe he would take her toys, as he loves to do, or kind of maybe touch her. He can be sweet and say, this would be okay, Eloise. That's not what he do. Not what he did. Instead, he dropped down by her and lay next to her and just cried and whimpered with her. Immediately, Eloise got up. She perked up. She went over to Christina. She was changed. I think that when it comes to Jesus' love, we commonly read Jesus saying, just as I have loved you, meaning I want you to get the how, right? This is, I'm giving you an example. This is how I've loved you. That may be true, but that's not first what he means. First, what his point is, what he means is that I have loved you. It's the existence of love. Love has been established, right? It's been given. It's been displayed and will be about to be displayed most gloriously. That meaning then is carried over to verses 34 and 35 where we're going. But even there, Jesus puts it more obviously and changes it slightly to have love for one another. Another person put it well here, a gifted pastor, a friend of mine. The kind of love expressed or commanded by Jesus here is not simply an extension of that perfection of what the world calls love. This is a love that is alien, that is not quite at home in the world. Jesus loved well, and they killed him. Our love for one another will often look radically different from what the world calls love. Here's my point. Jesus is not simply saying, imitate me. Instead, he says, my love is in you. Be in me as I I am in you. Why? Because, as the same person went on to say, because before the love of God becomes a commandment in your life, it must first be a gift. That means that your first priority as a Christian is not to fix yourself and not to fix those around you. It's to know and to embrace and to enjoy the love of God as a gift to you, as a binding gift that can never be taken away. When Jesus commands his disciples to love one another, he prefaces it by saying, to be found in Jesus is to be found as loved. That is to say, to be the recipient of this command is to be the beloved. No one who receives this is not already loved by Christ, as loved as possible, even to the point of death. There's a reason this comes on the eve of his death, on the heels of the hour of his hour of glory that is now set in motion, and even in the same breath as his declaring God's immediate glory. To be loved by God is glorious now and forever. And furthermore, you can, no more, you can no more stop this love flowing out of a Christian as you can stop the water coming out of the end of a hose once the faucet is on, right? Or even imagine a huge fire hose with tons of water flowing through it. You're not going to be kinking that hose, right? There is no way to stop what's been initiated from pouring out the other end. So what does this love do for you? So we should ask that question tonight. What does it do for you? You might be asking, okay, how do I love others in this way? How do I follow Jesus' command? Well, first notice one thing. He gives this command to his disciples. He gives it to his own people. This is no mistake. Like we said a minute ago, there is no command where Jesus doesn't first show and then prove his own love for his disciples. He buries it deep inside them. He joins them to himself, gives them new identities. So first, Jesus comes into his own, right? And he gives his own guarantee of his love. But it doesn't end there. 
And the place he commands you to show this love, first and foremost, and right here in our text, is in his church. I think there's a whole lot we could say at this point about what this means for you to follow his command and display and live out this kind of love in the church. But here are just a few, a few points of application, okay, briefly. Lots more we could say. One thought, right, as you consider maybe the, the level of or the extent to which the command to love goes here, think about the authority of legal imperatives versus the authority of scriptural commands, right? We live under all kinds of laws. How high are they? Are they the same for you? Are they different for you? How so? By that I mean, which one has a firmer, has a firm and faster grip on your life? Because this is a place where the command, the mandate of Scripture, is much, much higher than any current legal demand on you. Two places where I could see, see that playing out. One is in the case of, from the New Testament, of slavery, right? If you've heard of Paul's letter to Philemon, he is urging this guy who has a slave who's to be returned to him. Slavery was different then. It was not, don't have in your mind, American chattel slavery but it was the case that he had few rights, the, the runaway. And Paul says to Philemon, who has a legal right maybe to press charges of some kind, receive Onesimus, the slave, as your own brother. <laughs> receive him as your brother. Receive him as your own. He is your equal. <laughs> the relationship is, is aside from what, the way that you have to receive him, right? Another, think about the way that we, that we spend our money, the way that we have our money. Um, you're commanded, right, in Scripture, we are as the church, right, to be serving the poor. That's going to require giving money to those who are in need. Just consider and think about how frequently, even how viciously, that's fought on a civil level. And as a good citizen, you have some choice in that area, right? Wisdom comes in. As a Christian, you do not. The picture in Acts 2.44 and 5 is that everybody else has a claim on everything that you own as a Christian. Going further... Maybe you'll find this true if you've been a Christian for a long time or for some time. How do you treat the Bible as living, as a breathing book? Where is it living and active in your life this week, this year, surprising you, challenging you? I would say that a Jesus who never challenges you to sharper circumspection, right, to deeper learning, to greater faith, is an inglorious Jesus altogether. And if that's the case for you, he will remain right on the periphery of your life, never at the center, not leading you and not shepherding you, but coming along for the ride of which you are the captain and the pilot and the navigator. Where is the authority, the place of Scripture in your life? For those of you who are married, for whom does your marriage exist? Who is it purposed for? Who is it for? And how are you living that out? Where are you making space in your ordinary life for those who are single divorced, homebound, that your marriage can actually be a grace to them, a blessing to them. One pastor in our denomination, Scott Sauls, he puts this very strongly in one of the chapter in one of his books on marriage and sex and celibacy and friendship. He writes this, we, meaning each person in the church, must ask the radical question of what it will take to ensure that every unmarried person has access to friendships that are as deep and lasting as marriage and as meaningful as sex. We must also ask what it will take for our communities, right, to effectively cultivate such friendships. He says, as meaningful as sex? Seriously? Yes, I really mean that. Have you ever read about David and Jonathan? Right? How meaningful are the friendships, whether you're single or married, how meaningful are you making them 
How much room are you giving them that they could take up the meaning, even as much of a gift as marriage is to anyone who's married? Um, I remember serving with RUF and getting what was usually refreshing, the raw honesty, candor of college students to say, I think what often older adults, myself included, want to say sometimes, but don't, won't go that far, you know? Um, just saying, just offering excuses, you know, if business relationships or for us, if, if children's friendships or an aversion to confrontation, to making new friends weren't there in adulthood, then I would be doing all of these things. That they were busy, right? They would say that. Or that they simply didn't want to love that way or sacrifice like that. Or that they didn't think that that was good for them. Are those your thoughts? Those are often my thoughts. Maybe they are yours too. One author, Frederick Dale Bruner, he writes and puts it strongly. Church loyalty is almost as important as loyalty to Christ himself, whose body is now the church. To wrap it up, right? This is a radical call to love one another. And it excludes no corner, no nook or cranny or crevice of your life. As Calvin or Augustine said, that, that God can't be your father without the church being your mother. This is a call to radically giving ourselves away and sacrificing ourselves. That is the new commandment. So for you tonight, where is this difficult in your life? I see so many people in our church practicing this so well. But no doubt, either for those who are maybe or who aren't, where is this difficult in your life? There are places, you know. Where do you think this will be painful to embrace? Because it will be painful. This kind of love doesn't come without pain. But the most beautiful love, kinds of love, necessarily involves pain. Right? Friendship, childbirth, marriage. Where is this going to be painful for you? Where will you share in Jesus' suffering and thus in his glory here? And just when it sounds hard and yet maybe beautiful enough, Jesus goes even further in verse 35, and this will be the last thing that we look at, saying this. By this, meaning this ruthless love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. What's he saying here? This isn't one another as in only the disciples, right? It goes past that. It goes way past that. He says all people. Think about it. Look at this moment. The disciples' burning question revealed right here and carried forward is, Jesus, you are leaving us. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They're thinking you're leaving us. So, pray tell, how will we bear witness to an invisible Lord and King, an invisible teacher and master? And you, us sitting in this room, might even think, Jesus being here in the flesh, it would be better. And if we could just have him in the flesh, that would solve and settle so many of our problems our disagreements, our beefs with the world, if only he were here, that would end it. But that's not what Jesus thinks. He thinks that the best way for the world to see him and for the world to see the Father, as he'll pray in John 17, is for the world to see his glory. And how will that happen? If he is betrayed, if he dies, is raised from the dead and ascended, and the world sees our love for one another that led him on that path. Though he's teaching only his disciples here, the love he is teaching them, that he says he has given them, is not just for each other. It is for all people to witness. Several years ago, right after college, um, my older brother and I had the harebrained idea of we're going to buy motorcycles. So we did that, and we're going to take this big trip together. So we take this much too long trip in six days, and part of it goes through the south um, toward, toward South Carolina and North Carolina, where we don't really know a lot of people. We're just traveling through. 
And just picture this. It's, um, it's June. It is extremely hot. We are in Swannanoa, North Carolina, on a broke-down, congested, construction-laden you know, portion of interstate. And everybody's sweating. And then you kind of put together, you're sitting on top of this really hot vehicle, and you're, just, you're pouring sweat, and the bike breaks down. So we're pulled over, looking like we have no future, you know, don't know what's going to happen. We have to get the thing towed, catch a ride with the tow truck guy to the shop. They're going to try and fix it. We don't know when. You know, a part needs to come in. We're clueless, helpless. Like, what do we do? Just if you can possibly get us back on the road, that's our only hope. We're at your mercy, right? And this one guy, Adam, who's at the service desk, we're, he's tracking us through the afternoon. You know, we solve this thing. We're looking at this problem now. He's trying to help us out, telling us when we can kind of get, get on with our trip, and, and we're trying to get home. And he keeps asking questions like, where are you guys staying? I mean, this is a tiny town, like one stoplight. Where are you staying? How will you get wherever you're going for the night? And we don't really have answers. We're like, we'll make it there. You know, I don't know. We don't have a choice. We just have to, we'll just sleep under a bridge. That's what we have to do. That's, that's all we have. And he watches us just kind of hang out all afternoon, walking around the shop, not knowing what we're going to do. He can see that we don't know what we're going to do. And um, finally, he asks us, as we're about to leave, how are you getting to you know motel or wherever you're sleeping for the night? And before we even say anything, he's like, I'm going to give you a ride in my truck. I know that you're going to jump on the back of that one motorcycle made for one with your big helmets on and jackets. There's no seat. And you're going to push down the springs and go into this not only very dangerous, but also kind of embarrassing moment, right, of driving through this town where everyone sees you doing something ridiculous, jump in my truck. I, don't, I, can't, I can't let that happen. I can't see that happen. The Harley purist says, no dice. I will make sure that doesn't happen. What's my point in telling you this? The point is this. He saw, it was obvious to him, maybe obvious and hilarious to him, how much we loved each other, how clear that was, our connection to each other. No one's going without the other. We're joined together. He anticipated even, before he saw it, he anticipated witnessing the kind of love that had no qualms with public embarrassment, with loss of face, with looking dumb. He anticipated seeing it, and he knew that we loved each other. Glory and love. That's where we are tonight. The scene is ready. Jesus' hour has come. The table is almost set with himself as it is before you now. His death is imminent, and he knows it. It's time to show the kind of love that will identify his disciples and his followers forever. It's time to glorify the Father and be glorified. And you might wonder, and reasonably so, how can I love this way? It sounds difficult, and you're right. It sounds painful and inconvenient and costly. Maybe ask these questions. How can Jesus have this kind of confidence facing death? Facing separation from the Father, right? Exclusion from the fellowship, the eternal fellowship of Father and Son. How can he have this kind of confidence? Because, unlike Emory Murphy, this is not your end. Just like it's not Jesus' end. Right? It's a radically, a radically different kind of love. And one that doesn't come without a cost. Right? One that is glorious, involves death. Though it doesn't end in death, it must come through death. Only a self-giving, listen, only a self-giving kind of love like this is worthy of the Son of God submitting to death. This is what he did it for. And it's precisely that kind of love that Jesus has given to us to show one another, for everyone to see, right? That they might be drawn to it and that they would 
witness Christ in it. Witness the one whom we follow. Take yourself back to the wedding ceremony. To tears. Tears in your eyes. To tears in the eyes of Christ, right? Coming for his bride. Because it is glorious. It is. For him the worst was yet to come. It was right around the corner, in fact. But for you, for me, it is sheer joy. Joy of the love of heaven finally secure in you. Right? Joy of a lover and friend who knows every part of you and yet still finds you irresistible. Who will win you back. Who will make you his forever. So that by your union, the whole world sees how beautiful and strong and majestic and splendid he is. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this Jesus, the one who would be delivered up to death, the one who would suffer, who would, knowing the pain that he would go through, his heart would break for us in that moment. What a savior, what a, what a friend, what a teacher, what a master he is to us, that we would have him, that we don't deserve him. We thank you, Father, for sending us this one, for calling him back to yourself, for leaving us this bread, this wine, that we would feast on him, that we would be not only reminded that this love abides in us as Jesus abides in us, but that it cannot be contained, that it must overflow, it must come together with others in your body, and that the whole world, the whole world will witness it. And in doing so, the glory of your Son will be on display for the ages as it has been, that they will all see the one that drew us. And we pray that they would be drawn as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.